Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. If you weren't here last week, you missed the change. We went to first, from 1 Peter, now we are in 2 Peter. And we are looking at a epistle that was written by the same author to the same audience, basically, believers who are spread throughout Asia Minor. 2 Peter. Look over at chapter 3. Chapter 3, as we begin this morning, I think this would be a good reason or statement of purpose for this short letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Notice, and fall from your own steadfastness. Notice the error of, princ- of unprincipled men. That's the problem of Second Peter. That's the problem that Peter is addressing here, where false teachers are going to come into their midst. We see that in chapter 2. That's the, that's the issue. Remember we saw in 1 Peter, be steadfast. It was also used there in 1 Peter, be steadfast in the midst of all the persecution that's coming from you, to, uh, towards you from the outside of the church. He's, now he's saying, be steadfast from this persecution that's going to be coming from inside the church. And that's false teachers coming in, unprincipled men coming in, trying to carry you away by their errors. And that's the warning of this particular letter. Be steadfast. Back in Acts 20, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 20, one of the warnings or the final warning that was given as Paul was leaving the Ephesian elders was he told them, false teachers will come from within you. It wasn't so much what was going to happen from the outside, but what's going to happen on the inside. Let me read to you the passage we're going to look at this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This, these are the two verses we covered last week. Let me read those in verse 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing, these are our verses for today, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." And so he began with saving faith. And this is so important that you get this one down. This is fundamental to being a believer, that you understand saving faith. It's a faith that is received. It's a faith that can never fail. Understand that. Saving faith is not a human faith. Saving faith is not a faith that I pull up my bootstraps and try to hold on and believe something. That's human faith. That comes and goes with circumstances. 
The faith we're talking about in saving faith is a faith that God gives. Notice the word received. It's a faith that God gives. He enables you to believe and embrace Jesus Christ. It's a faith that he provides. It's not one that you come up with yourself. It's a faith that continues. Jesus said, my true disciples are those who continue. Jesus acknowledged that even though some people believed in him in John chapter 2, he knew what was in their hearts. They may express belief, but their belief was not a saving belief. James talks about a faith that does not save. We must get this one down, my friends. And if you're going to stand firm to the readers that Peter's writing to, you've got to understand and know that you have this saving faith. Now, your faith is a, a genuine faith, that it's a gift of God. It's a free gift of God. And he gives complete forgiveness for your sin. He imputes the righteousness of Jesus to you. We talked about all of that last week from verses 1 and 2. That would be under the theological heading of justification, how you're made right with God, verses 1 and 2. Now we're moving into sanctification. Sanctification is different than justification. Sanctification is now that you have been made right with God. Now you grow in grace. Now you live out your justification. Now you become conformed to the image of Christ. That is the reason he justifies us, is to make us holy and blameless, to make us a people that proclaim the excellencies of God, to be a people that are conformed to his image, to be his church, to be the called out ones of God. And so justification, verses 1 and 2, now we enter into what the theologians would call just sanctification, beginning in verses 3, 4, and following. You will notice verse, um, verse 3 says the purpose of godliness, see that? Godliness for life and godliness. This is divine power has been granted to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. At the moment of salvation... We're granted this, that what we need for life and godliness, that refers to spiritual life, life because of the addition of the word godliness, we would say that's talking about our spiritual life. Um, godliness is, Vine says, godliness is that divine Godward attitude that, excuse me, it's a Godward attitude, doing what is pleasing to God, uh, a true, a true Christian, this verse is saying, possesses everything that is necessary to live a life that is pleasing to God. And so you can imagine the false teachers are trying to undermine and lead people into error so that they can't live a life that's pleasing to God. And we're always susceptible, folks. We're always susceptible to people coming around and telling us that we need something more. This is so common a new book is written every time somebody has an experience and they want you to have that same experience. They want you to some, they've discovered something new or some higher life or some higher meaning to life 
or some higher way of living the Christian life. This is very much on the scene today. It's been on the scene for a very long time. Our flesh always wants something new. Our flesh always wants something fresh. And there are plenty of people out there that want to offer those things to us. But he says here, at the moment of your salvation, when saving faith was given and you were justified, his divine power granted you everything you need. You don't need anything more than Christ. We'll break those down in just a moment. But key word, the key word, the verb in this very long sentence, which actually starts in verse 3 and goes all the way down to verse 11, if you can imagine. It's kind of like Ephesians 1, very long sentence there as well. But in this passage, you go 3 down to verse 11, would be the length of this particular verse. The main verb, the only imperative, the first imperative you see doesn't come to verse, until you see verse five. Look at verse five. He says in verse five, let me go back and get my passage. Verse five, now for this very reason, applying all diligence. See that? And he tells you some things you need to do. You do nothing to get the gift of faith, but this is what you do in sanctification. And so what he's telling us in verses 3 and 4, before he gets to the main verb, applying all diligence, he's telling us that you have the power to be diligent. He's saying, I'm going to tell you to be diligent, but I must first tell you that you've got the power to be diligent. You've got the resources to be diligent. This is how you can be diligent. That's verses 3 and 4. He's granted us power and he's granted us promises. Verses 3 and 4. That's the resources you need to obey verse 5 and following. Very important. Very important to understand that structure here. I mean, verses 3 and 4 are a mouthful. I mean, I, you have to break it down. I had to write it sentence by sentence on a, and just break it down. It's just so much in three and four. But that's what we have been given to us at the point of salvation to be diligent. To be diligent. If you just told me to be diligent and didn't give me any power to do it, I would not be able to do it. Especially to the things he's going to say I'm to be diligent about. That's why I need the resources, the resources to do that. Before I look at that, I wanna, I wanna point out a few things here. Steve Collin made a good point when he said Colossians is really a good example where false teachers have come along, and I wouldn't say all these teachers are, are they're just not helpful. Most of them are just not helpful who promote some of these ideas. Um, some of them are false, just plain false, uh, motivated, in a, I believe, in a satanic manner. But, but a lot of teachers who promote certain things that try to be added to our Christian life, they try to add things to the Christian life that are not helpful. Turn to Colossians 1 for a moment. This is ritualism, ritualism, okay? I want to think about ritualism just for a moment. It, it's one of those 
heresies or one of those things out there that deny the sufficiency of Christ, deny the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, deny the sufficiency of God's word when it comes to sanctification. And this is not to say that it's okay, not, it's wrong to have a ritual. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about ritualism. Thinking I'm adding something to my Christian life to make me more sanctified and more right and pleasing to God. Verse 28 of chapter 1 gives you the context of what I'm fixing to talk about. It says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's what the context is. Paul wants them to be complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And then we come to verse Five of chapter 2. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That's what he wants for them. Stability of their, of their faith in Christ. So therefore, as you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. It's all about Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. And because I've just said that, verse 16, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These rituals, the, the calendar, you, you, you know, that you've got to follow the calendar to add to your sanctification. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying there are those who say you must do these things. Go down to verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. See what he calls it? Self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You see what he's saying? All of these external, all of this religion, all of this ritual, he says, does, is of no value when it comes to fleshly indulgence, which is what my sanctification is all about, restraining the flesh. But these externals do nothing to help with that. Don't mean to be negative here, but the Roman Catholic Church is a good example of that in the priesthood. Look at all the things that have happened with Roman Catholic priests over the years in abusing children Pedophilia, homosexuality, all the ritual did nothing to restrain the flesh. You take unregenerate men and you give them ungodly, unbiblical ways to restrain the flesh, and it's disaster. I'm just using this as an example. This can be anybody with any ritual they think is going to make them holy. Those things do not do anything for fleshly indulgence. That's the point he makes. And yet many people want to add that to sanctification, like it will somehow make me more holy. I think this has happened in charismatic churches as well. Some, not all, but some charismatic churches. They too develop a sense of ritual. And they will say that you want to give evidence that you really have the Holy Spirit, that you really are a Christian. You, want to, you need to be filled with the Spirit. And they pride themselves in being free in the Spirit. And they say, like I said, speaking in tongues is evidence of salvation. But the tongues they speak, we've talked about many times, is not the biblical tongues. 
that we read about in the Bible. But understand this, no one grows spiritually by spirit, speaking in tongues or any spiritual gift. Understand that. Today they call it a prayer language. This somehow external activity is somehow going to sanctify me and change me. Matthew 6, 7 says this, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. the, The idea there is do not use repeated vowels and sounds, like you're trying to wake God up to something. And then they have other rituals. You fall over. This is in the charismatic, some charismatic circles. You fall over into somebody's arms. This, and you travel for miles to find this kind of a teacher who will carry on like that on stage and people just passing out in the spirit and uh, pro- proclaiming so-called miracles, cl- claiming to be an apostle, uh, bringing heaven down, all of those kinds of things. Listen, that movement is not known for its genuine holiness but just rampant immorality. Look at the Corinthian church. We studied that for months, the Corinthian church, a church that had all those spiritual gifts, the true gifts, they had the true gifts, and yet they were called immature, they were called fleshly, a lot of emotion, but they were not godly. Yes, they were saints, they were in Christ, but in terms of persecution, in terms of sanctification, they were not becoming holy. Rituals add nothing. I want you to understand that. Rituals add nothing to daily Christian living. Jesus said to the Pharisees, what did he say to them? They were heavily into ritual. You whitewash tombs. You look so good on the outside, but inside you, you have dead men's bones. You're dead on the inside. Big, big issue. People want to draw you into their ritualism. You know, I have rituals. I get up and read my Bible, and I do certain things, and I pray with my wife, and I, I mean, I ha- but listen, I know that I can do all of that with a very dark heart. All of my activity does not make me changed and conformed to the image of Christ. Just being here every week isn't going to do it. I think you should be here every week, but I know it's not going to change anybody just sitting in this pew. And and another one is mysticism. Turn to Colossians 2. You're already in Colossians, but look at 2. This this was an issue in the the church there was... uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a higher knowledge. It was very prevalent in Colossae. We have a new Gnosticism today, by the way. It's really on the scene today. Higher knowledge, higher level, higher understanding. That's the word gnosis. It comes from knowledge. It's Gnostics. Uh, He says in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you. This is 2.18. Keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You see that, that higher. Uh, I've seen a vision. I've had visions. I've had, you know, you hear this. Very intimidating language when you get around people like that. 
Because you haven't had one, but they've had lots of them, supposedly. Very intimidating. Don't let people defraud you with that. And, and, and not holding fast to the head. That's what they do. They get distracted with that stuff. Their minds get inflated, and, and they don't hold fast to the head, to Christ, for, for whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. It's our focus on Christ that does it. It's not all this other stuff. Listen, salvation provides you with everything you need for the knowledge of salvation and for godly living. You are complete in Christ. That is what Peter is telling us. You are complete in Christ. Every resource has been given to you, everything you need. But see, we're being told today that mysticism is needed, and this is the big one. Bypass the mind. What's your heart telling you? What's your heart telling you? Very subjective. Puts an emphasis on immediate experiences of God. Intimate uh, consciousness to a divine reality, they would say. You don't need the intermediate steps we're used to, like, you know, the Bible. Even going to church. Even fellowshipping with other believers. You don't need those disciplines. You can have your own intimate fellowship, relationship with God in your own way. You want to feel close to Him. They seek to hear God's voice outside the Bible. Um, Lots of authors in this camp. Lots of authors. Henry Nolan was a... Here's the wild part about it. Henry Nolan was... A lot of Protestants followed this guy for years. He's a Dutch Catholic priest. A Catholic priest had tremendous influence into the thinking of many Protestants with his methods of praying, his methods of contemplation. You read his book. I tried to read his book. I tell you, I couldn't understand what he's talking about. It's just higher nonsense, in my opinion. But just this higher knowledge stuff. And just kind of walk, go, whoa, that's so deep. Whoa, I don't even know what you're talking about. But that's how that language is. It's just, you just can't bring anything concrete to it. You can't anchor it in anything. But people ran after that. His methods of praying and contemplation, and he was a, a Catholic mystic, and there's been others on the scene, Catholic mystics. Not, keep, keep in mind, Roman Catholics, I love Roman Catholics, but you know what? Their doctrine is a damning doctrine. Their doctrine will send people to hell. Their doctrine of salvation will send people to hell. They have a false gospel. And to follow somebody like that who preaches and proclaims a false gospel because you like his sanctification methods? Then I have one I have to apologize his whole church about, and that's Henry Blackaby. Because I, I actually promoted him in my younger years. And not everything he says is bad. He says a lot of good things, but I really think he promoted even some of this contemplation, some of this uh, where you need to, how do you say it, uh, you want God to direct your every day just like he did the apostles. You want to hear from God every day just like he did 
the apostles. I'm not saying everything the man said, the black as bees said was bad, but the whole Southern Baptist denominations and, you know, has promoted his materials for years and they still do. But it's just a, it just feeds more and more of that bypassing the mind and getting your messages directly from God. Seems innocent, you know, but it's, it's very subtle. And then there's a guy who wrote a book called The Chair. The chair. He says you sit in a chair for 30 minutes and listen for God's voice in your head. The author of this book is Sutherland. He wrote this book and he says his, his life coach is the one that taught this to him. And he said it just changed his view on what prayer was all about. He says it's a new way to pray. New way to pray. Actually, it's an old way, but it's a new way. You know, it's a new thing on the scene. A new way to pray. Mysticism. For 30 minutes, quotation marks, he says this, for 30 minutes, I want you to be still and listen to God. Don't bring your prayer list. You know, what to, you know how to talk to God. Don't bring your Bible. You know enough scripture to change the world. Just you and don't talk. Don't talk for 30 minutes, except to say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Don't get me wrong. I don't think, I think there are times for us just to be quiet in God's presence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Folks, to open our minds up to these things that are, are subtle attacks on the sufficiency of Scripture. I've said it to you before. If you want to hear God speak to you out loud, then read the Bible out loud. And you will hear God speaking out loud. It's one thing when I have a thought that I can line it up with the Bible. That means I'm becoming more and more biblically minded in things. That's one thing when those kind of thoughts run through my head. But when something else runs through my head where God is telling me to do something like it's revelatory, new revelation, that gets really dangerous. And then there's another one, uh, syncretism. Uh, syncretism is people that, don't, that like a little bit from both worlds, ritualism and mysticism. Syncretism is um, when you, you like philo different philosophies and you want to take the best from different philosophies of the world that are out there. Nobody has a pure philosophy they just want to hold on to. You know, they just want to draw from many sources. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm a Christian, they would say. I'm a Christian, but in order to really live the Christian life, I'm going to need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's syncretism. I heard someone say, and this makes a lot of sense, buffets are good. Buffets are good. You get to go to a buffet at a restaurant, and you can pick the meat, the chicken, you get that. You can get the uh, meatloaf if you want that. You can bypass the carrots. You can go over here, and you can get, it's pick and choose. You can get whatever you want. Buffets are good for restaurants. Buffets are bad for sanctification. Picking and choosing what you like. They don't work. It's disastrous. I like what this philosophy over here teaches. I like the prayer methods of this guy over here. I like what this person is saying about uh, how do you spend your quiet time or whatever. And I, I like to draw from everybody. I'm not the follower of one, one idea. I'm the follower of many ideas, as if that's just some virtue. People get intimidated with, we get intimidated with non-believers, don't we? We want to sound credible. We just want to sound like we're academia, we're smart people. 
We don't like to just say, hey, I believe in the sufficiency of this book for everything I need to grow and and mature in Christ. We want to sound smart to the world, so we say things like, uh, evolution, okay, I can make room for evolution, so I'll sound smart. Or feminism, yeah, I think feminism, I get it, I want feminism in my theology somewhere. Or marriage and gender issues, okay, I got a good friend, you know, who's a good person, and I just, you know, I get that. We just want to make room. And then we want to mix Christianity with social justice and and wokeness, that's the new thing. And then we want to mix Christianity with secular psychology even. Listen to what Freud said about he was the father of secular psychology, of which there are now 12, almost 2,000 different methods of psychology, by the way. But Freud, who was the father of secular psychology, said this, I am training a generation of secular priests so we can take over soul care. End of quote. That's exactly what he did. (laughs) Took it out of the church, took it away from pastors, took it away from, and just intimidates everybody because it's it's this higher knowledge. Who do you call in when you need an expert witness? You call in that psychologist who has no idea what the real problem is, therefore he has no idea what the solution is because he doesn't have the word of God. Biblical, Biblical approach to counseling starts with a right understanding of your problem and we know the solution. So, key verse on syncretism. Go to 2 Corinthians 6.14. 6.14. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Don't lose 2 Peter. We will come back. We are... This is 2 Corinthians 6.14. Just a key verse on syncretism. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. People use this as the marriage verse, don't marry an unbeliever, and that certainly makes sense, but that's not what the context of this is about. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? They were trying to combine idols, worshiping idols, sacrificing to idols, all those kinds of things. They were trying to blend all that in, syncretize it all. He's saying... What fellowship has light with darkness? What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? The answer is they don't. They don't. They have no fellowship or partnership. In other words, the the addition of any of these popular approaches does not add value to your sanctification. If I make no other point, let it be that. If that is what that is exactly what we're learning in 1 Peter. Chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You don't need all of this. They add nothing to your sanctification. They short-circuit your sanctification. They turn you into self-sanctifying individuals as you try to apply all of these methods in your own power, trying to change your own heart. You can't do it. You become the architect of your sanctification self-sanctify. And and you know what? You'll eventually turn to apostasy because you get so burnt out with it because it doesn't get you there. It doesn't get you there. And so, 
That brings us to 2 Peter chapter 1. If we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, if we're going to be people who have that true saving faith, then we must understand some things that God has done to us as a result of our saving faith. And that is what, that is what we see here in verse 3. First you see power, Christ's power. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, Christ's power. How do I know? How do I know that I'm going to make the journey? How do I know I can be diligent? How do I know what it, I have what it takes to be diligent? Verse 5. How do, I, how do I know I have that? Because I have power. That's what he says. Because I have Christ's power living in me. And it's because of the one who grants it, right? See the word his? Antecedent for who? Jesus Christ. Previous verse, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see that in verse 2? Antecedent falls right down there. So it's his power, Christ's power, Christ's power. Notice he says divine. Another Trinitarian verse, another verse that points to the deity of Christ. Christ has divine power. Follow that? We saw divinity of Christ in the previous verse. The Lord, uh, it's up there, verse one or two. But the point is, the point is, you, you remember last week we talked about the deity of Christ and the importance of understanding that that we're not just talking about we're not just talking about a good person, a good man, a good teacher. We're talking about God in human flesh. His divine power showing that he has deity. Uh, I have what's necessary to walk in holiness. I have what's necessary uh, to be diligent because I have this power. It's spiritual power, Peter says, that's available to me. Set your mind on things above, Paul says in Colossians 3, not on things that are on the earth, 1 Corinthians 1.30, by, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We had that in Christ. It's Christ at the beginning, Christ in the middle, and Christ at the end. It's all about Christ. Look to Christ. I need strength. I look to Christ. I don't let anything get between me and Christ. I don't, look, I don't let anything get, get in between me and dependency on Christ and his power. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, because that term in Christ is a very important term. It's used numerous times throughout the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. It describes you as a Christian in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is already yours. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1. he says this. He starts it out in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of, G of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and talks about all the blessings of those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen, if you're not in Christ, this isn't you. If you're not in Christ and you've not repented of your sin, you don't have nothing. You don't have anything in you like this. 
You don't have any of the things I'm reading. You're empty and you're cursed before God because you're not in Christ. He says, they list the blessings in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is true of every believer that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the reason he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless. That's the reason he gives us saving faith, that we'll be holy and blameless. And positionally, I am. And positionally, I'm in Christ. Progressively, I'm growing in Christ to become holy and blameless. Yes, I'm holy and blameless positionally because I'm in Christ, and Christ is holy and blameless. But now I live out that holiness and blameless of my position. I live it out in progressive sanctification. He says you've got to be diligent to do that. You've got to be diligent, Peter's going to say later, to be diligent to make your election sure. To make your election sure. The greatest evidence that you've been chosen by God, that you've been chosen by Christ, and you receive these blessings, is that you have these outward evidences that Peter is going to show us in verse 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 1. We aren't there yet, but we'll get there. You want to make your election sure. You live it out. He says in verse 5, He predestined us. Notice we have adoption. We're adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. You weren't in the family at one time. Now you're in the family. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He gave His grace. He lavished grace on us. We're going to see in a few minutes. But He he redeemed us. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We've been totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. Your greatest need is you need forgiveness. need forgiveness by God. And it only comes in Christ. Verse 10, he says, he sums up all things in Christ and we also have an eternal inheritance. But this is what I want you to notice. This is what I want you to notice and I don't know how much more time I'm going to get today, but I want you to notice this in verse 15. Paul then, after he lists all these blessings, he comes to verse 15 and we're going to see some things he says and and something that he prays. Notice in verse 15, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's my prayer for you. My prayer is that you will have a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation, in the knowledge of him. And then he says this, and notice his prayer, folks. Notice his prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and notice, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. See the word power? Is Paul praying that they will have power? No. He's praying that they will realize they have power. You follow me? See the difference? For most Christians, they don't even know the power they have. They don't even know the power that God has put in them to live out the Christian life. 
Some people say, some people don't like the doctrine of sanctification the way I'm presenting it to you this morning. They like to say, just let go and let God. Forget this diligent thing. Just let go and let God. I'll tell you something, folks. I never, if I let go and let God, I don't drift to holiness. I drift to fleshliness, and so do you. I realize he's given me this power for a reason. The reason is so I can be diligent. And he's going to list some things to be diligent in, but we're not there yet, but we will get there. So he says, I'm not praying that you'll get power. <laughs> You've got power. And this is exactly what Peter's saying. Go back to 2 Peter 1. And see, that's the question. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of this? Are you aware of what you already possess? Or have you been deceived into thinking, I've got to look somewhere else. Now, I've got to go somewhere else to get the power I need to deal with this sin in my life. Or I need to go somewhere else, get this power so I'll feel closer to God. Or I've got to go somewhere else to get this power so I will somehow be more pleasing to God. Uh, some people who, who doubt the power, they turn to the doctrine of second blessing. They turn to the doctrine of second experience. That I need, a, uh, another, I need a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I got saved back here, but I need to have a second experience and have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I say, no, you don't. If you're truly a Christian, it came at the day of salvation. The Spirit came in his resurrection power and indwelt you. Or they turn to higher life teaching or some magical way to sanctification if they don't believe that they have this power and that he has given us everything. See the word everything? Where are we at? Second Peter 1, are you back there? Second Peter 1. See the word everything in verse 3? Everything. In the original Greek, that word is at the beginning or near the beginning of the sentence, meaning emphasis. Everything. It's emphasized everything. It's important that you know the limitless nature of the power of Christ in your life. You don't need anything outside of his divine power. You have the Spirit, you have the Word. You have Christ. He says, that's what you need. I think I'm going to have to stop because we have some of the things we want to do, but I do want to say a couple things. I got two more points. If you want to come back at 1230, <laughs> or we'll just wait till next week. You know what these verses tell us, folks? They tell us that we got a battery pack. <laughs> A supercharged battery pack. He didn't just say me and then just say, now go do it. Go be like Jesus. He didn't say that. He said, saved you. Putting this battery pack on you, supercharged battery pack on you so you can be diligent. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Now, Christian life is not you and I trying to flesh it out in our own power. It's not you and I trying to find some fleshly means or human approach to becoming more godly. We've got everything we need in Christ. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word and your truth. 
Thank you, Father, for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.